Okay, so uh, theoretically we're streaming and uh, things should be getting going. Maybe a few people will hop on the live stream and check us out, but welcome to Pipe Major Robert Matheson. Uh, Rob, you teach regularly at the dojo, so but we haven't caught up in a while, not since the last cruise probably. Uh, if that's, yeah. If that's what you want to call it. It was, it, it, the, the cruise was uh, like the first, uh, the first tasting of COVID-19 really. Like we were all kind of, we were all kind of in denial about it. And then, uh, and then it hit the cruise pretty hard. We were like delayed three days or something like that. Yeah. That was kind of the kickoff of it. And the, the the kind of warning bell started to ring there. It never stopped Dojo having the cruise though. And we went ahead and done it and it was fine. And we were all safe. Um, but it just, uh, that's probably the last big social event piping wise that we were at. I know. Yeah. I was just so stressed the whole time. I, even once we got going, I had, I had trouble relaxing just because everything was so up in the air. And then, and then the staff, like particularly, uh, what was the name of the lady that was in charge of the, of the groups? Uh, she was just a miserable, Oh yeah. I miss uh, had- Well, and I mean like I'm sure uh, I'm sure she had her reasons, you know, she was basically trying to deal with a, a bunch of different groups all of whom had their their plans basically cut in half and she was trying to accommodate everyone. It was probably yeah, but regardless. Uh it was interesting so it, it did prove that pipers are pretty resilient creatures. I mean we were, I think we were delayed a few days, weren't we, from the, the launch of the ship and we were all held up in a hotel, but it didn't stop us going to the management and getting the pipes out and organising some uh, sessions in the rooms and, yeah. you know, we had a big band going in the foyer and the, 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 the residents were going crazy. You know, it just shows you how resilient and how social an instrument the bagpipes can be in a situation like that yeah. because it was a pretty stressful situation the hotel was full of people who had just been told by the way you know that 10-day holiday is no longer happening or might not happen at all or it's going to be delayed so people were a bit upset you know yeah and it was and the weather wasn't good and there's and you're in newark new jersey it was kind of see if had we been stuck in florida that would have been totally different i think you know we would have made the best of it yeah we we could have had (laughs) could have had tiki bar parties and stuff but instead we were at the whatever hotel in Newark and, uh, but you're right. It was all right. And then, uh, yeah, it was, it was tricky, but, um, uh, but yeah, that was sort of the last thing. And then it sort of was clear coronavirus was going to be a thing at that point for me, you know, uh, yeah, I felt sorry for the dojo team because the, the, the amount of planning that goes into something like that and, and you kind of, uh, you prepare for any set of circumstances, but who would have thought, that uh, the scare of a pandemic would have just switched the lights off like that. I mean, that was really scary. Yeah. Uh, and and th- there was nothing you could have done about it. But hey, we had a great time. It went ahead, albeit a few days late. Yeah. Um, and it was soon forgotten about. I mean, and, and I never really heard any negative comments because I think everybody realised, look, we're making the best of this. And yeah. some, one or two people went home early days. Uh, but the people that stayed, I think, were glad that they stayed. That's right. A couple of people did go home. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just, it was a bit wild. And uh, I think uh, some, some of the folks who went home may have been not just frustrated, but also maybe legitimately worried about, uh, about catching like some, uh, sure. catching COVID too, you know? And then um, uh, yeah, a couple of folks did go home and then um, 
I think that's right. And I also think that Royal Caribbean did a great job. Like, oh. like they, they nailed it in as far as making the best out of the bad situation too, because, you know, uh, they were just like, we're going to pay for your hotel room. Just send us the bill. And they did. Yeah. And it was easy. Yeah. So we were stuck in the hotel, but we weren't paying for it, which was nice. And then mm-hmm. as soon as we got on the cruise, they're just like, just so you know, you're going to get, you're going to get paid back and then some for the time that we've missed. Um, and I think our cruise credits are still good. Like there's been oh, no. Yeah, they are. Yeah. But the cruise credits are still on. We've checked that out. And also the, uh, because the, there was, they were down in numbers in terms of passengers on the ship, the service was brilliant. The ratio of staff to, yeah. to passengers was great. I mean, you just had to snap your fingers and that, you know, gin and tonic was there 30 seconds. I like that part. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, and that's it. And then, uh, and then, uh, you were you were sort of not you were kind of stuck outside of Glasgow for a while at the beginning of the lockdown, right? Like you weren't able to go home for a while. Uh yeah, a little bit. It seems so long ago now. I mean, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, but that was nothing really. I mean, if you want to talk about being stuck, right? I actually went over to Spain to the Canary Islands, and uh, my wife Anne was supposed to follow, and about three days after me, and. The, the severe lockdown kicked in as right. soon as I got on the plane okay. and I was actually stuck there. I used the word stuck, stuck in the sun for 16 weeks. Yeah. Without your wife. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She must've been like, well, she was probably enjoying herself being by herself as well, but you know, uh, but yeah, that must, that, that's crazy. That's four months. That's almost four months. <laughs> yeah. Now that's when you're glad of technology like this, where you can, uh, well, she was certainly glad and you should uh, check up on me every day or every other day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, honey. The, the internet went down for three weeks, yeah. but I, I'm back now. Uh, once I get once I get a few drinks in, I, I refer to it as a trial separation. There you and go. And how it went quite well. <laughs> I'm sure the well, I, feeling was mutual, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's it's just kind of wild and crazy. And, and everybody has tried to deal with the virus in a different way too. I mean, you know, uh, you've got Highland games still going in Florida, which is like wild. And then, uh, and then the world's now canceled for two years in a row, um, in, yeah. in Scotland. Cause it's just, it's just too, too much is up in the air for an event that yeah. big to operate, I think. Right. And I, I think that although the, it was very abrupt, the way the, the thing switched off and everything was canceled, and we're, we're having a very kind of phased approach to it here. Everything gets cancelled in due course. Um, they're not standing up and saying, right, no pipe band competitions for the whole year. Um, they're kind of, and, and I understand why it's like this. So every two weeks we hear another two cancelled, another two cancelled. And we're becoming a bit numb to it now. We know it's coming. But it's because various sponsors, we have to give them their place and they have to announce the cancellation at the time. Sometimes it's local councils, so they wait until they get the, you know, the, everything's, yeah. there's no chance of it happening. It's all to do with the money and the sponsors. Uh, and I don't think there's any one group or association is in charge of all the competitions. The RSPBA only run the five majors. So any minor competitions are run by a branch and a sponsor or a local authority. So not there isn't any body that could cancel the whole season. Right. The only people that could do that would be central government, you know. Yeah. And they were basically saying cancelled until further notice, but they weren't giving you a deadline. So 
it's a, a shame every time I hear it because and I'm attending meetings sometimes in the Association for Adjudicators where we're making ourselves available for dates that we know is not going to happen. Yeah. But it hasn't been cancelled yet, so we still go through the procedure um, of allocating adjudicators for it. And it's... A, it's very frustrating for sure. I think that's, you know, I think that's exactly it. And I think that the rolling nature of it, right? So, so you're only 80% sure everything's canceled. So you, you, you kind of keep it alive, but do you feel that also prohibits uh, people, you know, would it have been better to just cauterize the whole thing at the beginning so that there was time and space to do things like, you know, uh, explore rule changes or have meetings or, and I know some of that has gone on in the RSPBA, right? Like, wasn't there a mm-hmm. meeting of grade one pipe majors or something like that? Yeah, that, that was pretty well down the road when that happened. I think one of the negative things about not cancelling the whole year, um, you're leaving a bit of hope in everybody's mind thinking, oh, you know, the first one's cancelled, but maybe we'll get the second last championship. Maybe we'll get the worlds. So, they tend not to make other arrangements. I think if we had cancelled for the whole year or longer, we would have then said, okay, how can we do something online? Because, uh, you know, we've, we've got a whole year ahead of us. We need to do something. Right. Whereas if you know it's possibly going to recommence in July, oh no, it's August, oh no, it's September, oh no, okay, well, it's next year. It, it was kind of given to us and, you know, piecemeal the way we, the way we right. heard the, the news. So no, nobody actually planned an alternative. And that's the one negative. Um, and and, and I'll, I've enjoyed watching the, the bands online, uh, you know, put up these videos where they're either doing a Zoom call and it's all in the compartments, all the members of the band, or some of them have been a bit more adventurous and a bit more creative visually with the things that they're doing. Yeah, uh, I think that's great. And the other thing I noticed as well, that there was a because the competition element had been taken away, uh, there was a, a bit more camaraderie in terms of complementing each other in the playing, you know, uh, you yeah. didn't see them as the enemy because there was no competition. So you would see bands from opposite sides of the fence, if you like, um, you know, uh, complimenting and commenting on performances and uh, in a very positive way. And that was really nice because a lot of that has diminished over the years because it's so, so competitive. Uh, and you a lot of them, you couldn't really be seen to be complimenting the competition in case it had a bearing on the next event, you know, right. <laughs> so it gets a bit political and things like that. So, so that was one of the positives uh, that I noticed online, you know, from the, the cancellation of the season. Yeah. And they did that, you know, and, and that was maybe more last year than this year. Like, I feel like this year they've kept hope alive even longer. Almost. It feels like, yeah. and I could be, I could be way off there, but it feels like last year we got to a certain point not that far in. And it was just like, okay, that's it. There's basically no hope of anything. And I think this year, just like, I don't know, I guess the idea was that people would become vaccinated and then be able to do it. But, but I don't know. Well, people were surprised that the season was canceled and people were even more surprised that two seasons would be canceled. Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I remember, I don't know if Terry would like me saying this, but I remember chatting with Terry Lee, you know, fairly soon after the lockdown last year. And, you know, and, and his concern was that we'd ever get back to it, you know, um, because 
it's like, man, two years is a long time. And, uh, are, you know, are people, are people moving on from the overall idea? I wonder like when they do have it next year, what's it going to look like? Yeah. Well, there are people I know of, and you'll know from being from your pipe major experience, there's always people in bands that are of an age where they're close to making this their last season, but maybe next year or the year after. They're in that kind of end game zone yeah. where they're, 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 they're planning an exit at some point, an appropriate point. And that happens when you win the world sometimes. that If you win the World Pipe Band Championship, there's always three or four people decide at that point it's time to retire. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so there is a group in that kind of zone and that certainly will happen because just now when the two years shut down, if people were thinking of retiring within two or three years, this is the big opportunity to not bother coming back right. and doing all the work. So so that alone will lose quite a lot of numbers, I think, in bands. Yeah. Um, and you'll get the ones who have found other things to do and think, you know what, I didn't miss it that much. I've managed to cope, so I'm going to just do something else. Uh, and, and I hope I'm wrong with that, but there's going to be an element of that. Uh, but on the same token, um, in the shop, we, we make a lot of kilts for uh, a lot of the grade one bands. And one of the big bands, uh, Bog Hall and Bathgate, actually, there was a youngster came in to get his band kilt sorted. He had to get a new kilt. And, uh, I was, and his mum was there and he's playing in the juvenile band. And I says, well, how are you coping with the, the season not going ahead? And she said, oh, he's really gutted because this year he was going to get a trial for the grade one band and, you know, there was a chance that he would get playing and yeah. he feels now that that might not happen and he's lost it. And, and I says, well, I would see, I would say there's a, a even better chance now because you'll find, I think, there will be a cull at the, at the older end and they'll be looking for fresh faces to come through yeah. when they, they re-establish again. I say, so if I was you, I would practice as hard as I can because they're going to be trying to find youngsters to come in and fill the slots for the guys that went out the door. Um, so the bonus is for the young ones. Um, and I think there's far more good players around now than there ever was. You know. Yeah. I'm just trying to like, <clears throat> I'm trying to predict the future, but, you know, so, okay, well, uh, it'll be 2022 worlds you know and then uh will, will overseas bands come yeah will they come i don't know yeah I, I i you may get one or two but but that's you know like so uh i don't know i'd certainly like to come and you know play with inver area if, if there's going to mm -hmm. be a thing but that, i'm just one guy but like if you're going to bring a whole band over uh there's going to be difficulty with vaccines and who's vaccinated and who's not and whether or not there's new strains and all that stuff. And then, you know, piping live is, and the world isn't so bad, but it could be like, if it rains, everybody is like basically hugging each other inside a tent all day. Uh, mm -hmm. and then, but then piping live is all tight spaces. Uh, you know, yeah. so the whole thing will have to be rethought out. Um, and, and then, if you're thinking of investing a large amount of money to come over, I think you're still hedging your bets and maybe waiting yet another year. And it's probably a, a much bigger investment than it was before because there's going to be vaccinations and um, certification to travel. And uh, uh, flights will be scarce. Uh, you yeah, know, at and, that and more expensive probably. Yeah, that's what you I mean. What, yeah. yeah, supply of flights will be less. So mm -hmm. prices will be higher uh, to yeah. even get there. 
Yeah, so there's no question about it. I can see uh, there being a, a lower entry, but I don't think that's a reason for not starting it up. Um, right. But I don't buy into this thing that I'm hearing on the internet where they're saying we can't just restart again. The bands need two, three months to get going and that. I don't think that's the case at the top end and I don't think it's the case at, at the, the young end, at the novice and the juvenile. That's not how it works. No, either these bands could be ready in three or four days. All they need to do is get the pipes going, you know, and, and especially the calibre of player that are in the grade one and the juvenile and the novice as well. I mean, it wouldn't take long. A, a week or two would get these guys back on the floor again. Now, I know it's maybe not going to be as polished right, and as fluent as it might be if they had been running constantly. I get that. But, you know, in some ways it might be even better because everybody will try really hard. It's like when, you, when you're pipe measuring a band and you, you've played a March to Spain reel for the last 20 years uh, and you bring out a new one and you make the assumption, or everybody in the band has the assumption that the old one is stronger. And sometimes it's not the new one because everybody applies themselves. Right. It's like giving it a difficult tune to the pipe cord. You think, mm, we'll see how they got on with this. Very often they come back and they cope with it very well and they let you down on the simple tunes. I think that's. I think you're going to see that 100% when we get back. Uh, the quality of the band that you get in a short period of time is going to surprise everyone you know absolutely i think inverary like just you know i know the i know that the guys aren't sitting around not like doing nothing and and like maybe you're doing less but you know uh when you do leg day every single monday for 30 years you know like that's not necessarily good for you and that's sort of what yeah. you're talking about with the msrs right i think some time away and then having a fresh crack at it here when we do get back i think i think the level of play uh, in uh, in a lot of cases is going to be is going to be is going to surprise us, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the super sub in the football he sits there, he gets on for the last ten minutes. You know, yeah. he's frustrated for eighty minutes. He comes on for ten minutes and scores a goal. Yeah, now, it could have been on for the whole ninety minutes and not scored. <laughs> and there's also the issue, uh, and then then there's also the there will be a relief factor as well. Like you know. Let's just relax a little bit. At least we're playing. There'll be that kind of vibe, which will, I think, I think that'll take, you know, in some of the early competitions until people get all stressed out again. I think there will be that, a relaxation factor too, where people are, where bands are just playing loose. And, um, and so it's, it's exciting and, and musically good. So I, I do think, I, that's what I think about this whole thing. And it's sort of what I was alluding to earlier when I was saying that it's a shame in a way that they don't just cut off the season and just say like, all right, this now can officially just be rebuilding time. And, you know, uh, you know, guys like me can work on our burls instead of like wondering if we're going to need, you know, all of our sets going in a couple months or, or worrying about whether or not we need to figure out how to get to Scotland or something like that. Yeah. Like to just, to just be clear about what it's going to be. Um, so that you can well, see, so that you can focus I, I, on something specific. I, I think that's why there should be an online format developed for a pipe band competition, even if it was going to start up again next week, because an online format means the whole the whole world can take part if they like, um, because there's no flights involved or cost involved. Yeah, uh, and, and the one disappointment I think a lot of the organisations haven't really grasped is we haven't embraced 
the the opportunity of online performance in the sense that they haven't um, looked at it differently. What I'm seeing is people are trying to recreate what we do in a, a live competition. They're trying to recreate it online. And I, I think it's ludicrous. I mean, even the solo competitions, and I mentioned this at a judges seminar recently, where I'm seeing people dressing up in full Highland regalia and their Balmoral and the big cock feather and they're playing in their living room to a computer. I'm thinking, what are you doing? You know, and that is that makes us look like an eccentric group of people. You know, rather than allowing them to use a, a digital format and present the music like a pop star would put their video together. Yeah, you know, so that the actual visual element is just as much a part of the performance as the audio. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that is the way forward. And I'm hearing arguments against that by saying, "Oh, well, that would be unfair because you know with that Inverary band, they've got that clever guy Andrew Douglas. He would be helping me all the the IT oh, stuff." Oh, that's and totally all that's totally what everyone's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and clever and, guy. Uh, <laughs> you know, and whereas we don't have that facility in the band, they say, "Well, okay, but I don't buy that for a minute because I'm seeing people do great things with the Zoom platform and very." simple yeah. format and deliver great music it's how it's presented and I've, I've seen so i mean you can go outside and use drones or whatever you want to enhance the music visually and we shouldn't be worried about oh they might uh maybe not every piper's playing or you know they've uh, eq'd the sound to make it a bit better say, who cares the, yeah. the fact is they had the nose to do that they know this is better than that and as adjudicators, you can tell if something has been overmixed or EQ'd to a degree, uh, to such a degree, it distorts the sound and it becomes very clinical and plastic. Uh, and you can tell it's not a live sound, you know, it's been overdubbed. Uh, so you would judge it on that basis as well. But I think it would be great to have a competition which is basically the presentation, visually, the music, the message, the whole thing. Uh, and forget about how we do it outside. That's a different thing altogether. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest mistake all the organisations are making. They're, they're trying to recreate, uh, you know, I think I described it at the last meeting, is that they're trying to recreate the atmosphere in the village hall in Inverary where there's three people in the audience and one old guy judging and, and some kid playing their peabrock, you know. Yeah. And that's not what it's about. Some of these, some of these videos that were going up and they're using other instruments and all sorts of stuff uh, from the pipe bands and all the grades, and, and they're getting hundreds of thousands of hits. Yeah. Now, we can't get that in a piping event. No, no, we can't. So, so we should be saying, this is the way forward. Yeah. Well, we need we yeah. need to get this, grasp this online uh, as a medium and say, right, guys, submit your... Per- and, and you could actually have it live. You could have all the performances recorded, sent in on MP3 format, MP4 format, um, you could judge it live, you know, t- to give an, a, a kind of um, more of a live feel to it. You could have the sure. adjudicators listening to the recordings for the first time, giving a verbal crit and awarding the prizes. Now, I think that is a, quite a, a solid format for having an entertaining programme mm-hmm. and you could have subscription to watch it um, rather than just trying to recreate what we're doing outside. The thing is, you know, uh, it, people might disagree with you and say, Oh, that's not the way forward. Okay, fine. Maybe it's not the way forward, but but like, you know, at the very least, let's use this time to explore what possible 
uh, new ways forward might look like, or, you know, might feel like, or, or like, God forbid, you know, just have a little bit of fun instead of just sitting at home wondering when the competitions are coming back. We could be in danger of entertaining people. Right. Well, and that's just it. You know, I, I think, I think that's a great, uh, and I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I think audience-wise, I, I think yeah, audience-wise, uh, it's way more. It can be way more. Although you never know. At the same time, playing devil's advocate, you also don't know how many of those views viewed for longer than a couple of seconds either. But, um, but yeah, it's it's certainly interesting. Yeah, I'm not saying instead of. I'm saying as well as. Yeah. And and, and I think. Two things it should be used to plug the gap where there's no competitions, and it should be used to augment the overlap where we start to hold the events, but half the world cannot make it for cost reasons or logistical reasons or whatever. So you run the parallel, um, and it keeps people playing the pipes. There's a there's a strong chance that you would bring audience from out with pipe bands to listen to it on the uh, on the internet. Yeah. which might bring people into pipe bands at a later date. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just don't... We're not grasping the potential of, of the online competition. I agree. And, and you know, I don't think it's... Uh, uh, I, I also do think that stress plays a major role in this, you know, uh, because I people are probably, you know, magnitudes more stressed right now than they would be in normal times. Like, you don't know if you're going to have work you know, uh, next month, you don't know, you know, if you're going to be locked in your house for the next 16 weeks. So, and that's definitely played a, that's definitely been a major factor for, for us here is like, we just don't know anything and we don't, sometimes we don't even know if we're safe, you know, to do things. And then I think, I think it's, it's becoming more relaxed along those lines, you know, um, Mm -hmm. that now there's, now we're vaccinated for instance, and, and there's lots of data on COVID treatments and stuff. So I think people are less, you know, worried about that. But I think while they are worried about that, it definitely puts a damper on what you're willing to do piping wise. Yeah, yeah for so, sure. For sure. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty interesting. <clears throat> I've written, well, as you know, I, I showed you. So, I, you know, I've, I've been busy during COVID. I've, yeah. I, I've probably read like, uh, I probably read a hundred books. And uh, I spent more time in my snowsuit playing in the snow this winter than I probably have my previous, my entire previous life combined, you know, uh, just because uh, the kids were at home and, you know, we needed stuff to do. So we did that. And then, um, and then I've written my, my dojo book. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. I enjoyed it. Uh, Great companion for any paper, you know, and, I, I touched on a lot of the subjects that are not talked about as well. Yeah, like some of it, some of it is not, I, I don't think any of it, if you looked at any one page of the book, I don't think anything would surprise you. Uh, no. But I've never seen anything. And, and I think that's, I'm big on that, just sort of scratching, scratching my own itch. Like, what's something that we need? Well, I certainly would love something that I could just give to someone uh, that encapsulates like how I look at teaching all in one place. Um, and I think, and I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like just, uh, I've, I've just been busy doing things I wouldn't normally do. Um, so yeah, uh, you wouldn't have the time to do it. Probably. Right. Exactly. Or, or you would, you would like, I mean, writing a book, you know, 
it's always like, well, I'll save that for some other time. You know, yeah. that, that would usually be, but where in, in COVID it's like, geez, why not? You know? Um, and we've been, we've been running, we've been trying to do different events and um, yeah. And I think these conversations are part of that too. I think that having conversations with people uh, or one of the ways I learned about piping was just being a fly on the wall. Well, you know, people like yourself and Terry Lee would have a chat about something and I would just sort of secretly be eavesdropping on, on Mm -hmm. what people were saying. You know, I think that's really important, but it's also, we've had zero of that since COVID started as well. Like there's no hanging out in pubs. There's no, uh, crack after band practice, uh, nothing like that. So, so I've been doing a few of these. It's been, been pretty fun. So, uh, next question uh, so we we broke the internet last week uh, by putting out the B flat chanters thing, uh, and and I commented, you know, I'm becoming I'm becoming that person I used to roll my eyes at when I was younger, but uh, yeah, what do you, what's your take? I I think B flat chanters are the way to go. Like here's something that RSPBA could do uh, this year is they could push through that legislation. You know, just let's just go B flat. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it did happen in the brass band world um, a few decades ago where they changed the pitch and everybody had to buy new instruments, which is oh, really? quite a radical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I remember in the early days of the orchestra, I was quite involved in the first orchestral chanters that we brought out in, um, at Shepherds, and we used to do the Hogmanay show uh, for the BBC and it was just went out live. You had re- rehearsed through the day, and mm-hmm. occasionally you would, you could, they would let you record one backup track or something in case something went wrong. But when we played the house band, um, was normally Phil Cunningham and Ali Bain and um, John McCusker on fiddle. There was quite a few good players there, and we had to play the orchestral chanter for that. Now, what we would normally do when we done the numbers with the band, we would put in the orchestral chanters record the opening sequence, which was the number with the band, so we'd record that, and then do one number live, we'd dash out, put our own band chanters in to do our own spot, right? screw down the drones, and then come rushing in. Yes. You know, we had about an hour to switch over. And we'd, we all thought, oh, we have to do that, you know, because this is when we're raw, it's just the pipe band you're going to hear, and we need to play the sound that we compete with. But there was one year where there was no time logistically and, this, uh, and we actually done the stunt as a band with the B-flat chanters. Yeah. And we were all pretty apprehensive about it. And we thought, oh, they're going to be, the internet's going to go crazy saying shots were flat and all this. But because we had done the opening, all the rehearsals all day with the B-flat chanters, we worked quite hard getting the sound right on them. And we had quite a few numbers. And by the time we came to do our own stunt, it came across quite well. Nobody... I don't think anybody noticed. Yeah. Well, and you know, and if they did notice, if the sound's good, it's good. Yeah. But but genuinely, nobody actually said to us. And I, th- I said to the band, I said, don't mention it and just see what they say. Yeah. And the, the it was fine. And I didn't, and I have to, I understand they didn't notice because when I heard the programme, they repeat it a couple of days later on the TV. And I actually listened to the programme and I thought, it's not really noticeable. I was looking for it. But, the one thing I did notice when you've been playing the B flat chanter for that day, we would have played it for maybe over a period of five, six hours and then played the show live. When you go back 
and you put in your band chanters, it hurts your ears. <laughs> You're holding your ear. It's really yeah. piercing. Yeah. You know? Uh, and you think, wow. Is that, you actually, your first impression is your range went crazy. And it's not. That's the frequency you're playing at. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I, the same thing I noticed when we went, we'd done a concert in the Stade de France, La Nuit Celtique, and it was all the Breton band there, and we're playing with accompaniment. And the Bretons came round us, and we were having a good year that year. We were pretty high up, and I think we'd possibly won the world that year. And the Bretons were coming around listening to us, but some of them were putting their earplugs in because of the pitch. Yeah. Interesting. They found the pitch quite hurt, you know, that hurt their ears because they were all playing um, the 466. Yeah, you know, I I am, um, like, I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm at risk of coming across like I'm really pushing this agenda and uh, especially now that I'm t- talking about it and posting it on the internet and stuff. But I honestly, I think the pros of this far outweigh the cons uh, and, and I think testing would have to be done. I think it would, we would need to pilot the idea and, and I, you know, comments that I was reading on the internet after I put this out, and I, I was just putting this out off the cuff. I, it was not premeditated, but the first thing is, the first thing people say is, unless Field Marshal, uh, Inverary uh, shots, you know, unless the top bands, uh, St. Lawrence, I don't want to miss any top bands, you know, St. Lawrence mm-hmm. and all the other top bands, uh, unless they all did it, it would never happen. I'm sitting here thinking, if everyone... Uh, if everyone was on board to give it a try, I'm almost certain all the top bands would be willing to give it a try, you know, like on a trial basis, not like a, not like a Royal decree, but like, you know, uh, what if we did try it, especially in a year like next year where things are going to be a little bit uh, interesting and maybe not quite as polished or what have you. Like, I think we should experiment like things I would be interested in is like, can you get the pipes to start? you know, consistently at that pitch, you know, uh, and I guess what would you do? You'd put in longer drone reads maybe to make, to get the drones to tune comfortably at B flat and, and function and be solid and stable. Uh, I think, or, or you would put, use ex- drone extenders, um, initially, and then give the read makers time to produce the product to that pitch. Yeah. There, there's several, uh, positives on this from a kind yeah, of uh, so many bounce, positives, yeah. Uh, from a bounce back situation for the economy, you immediately you're selling all the reed makers, and all the bagpipe manufacturers. <laughs> Here's an opportunity to sell to the world all over again. Uh, some people would see that as a negative, but uh, that wouldn't worry me. I think that would be quite good for the the chanter makers and the bagpipe makers. Uh, it would start to make us reassess the harmonics because the harmonics are. There are more of them, and they're they're deeper and warmer and more mellow mm-hmm. at, at that pitch for sure. Yeah. Um, I think part of the thing that is, we're one of the few instruments that tries to clone each player to sound exactly the same, and that pushes us in terms of pitch and in terms of definition and and this side-by-side cloning. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that, but we're actually taking it to the nth degree and it becomes quite clinical. And the band that is the the most accurately set up pitch-wise and intervals, notation and all that, is not always the band with the best tonal quality uh, and a bit more timber. And I've noticed one or two bands, Inverary being one of them, have brought the pitch back a little bit. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and... 
People also, I noticed on the internet, somebody was saying this was the advent of plastic chanters. That's nonsense. The pitch was going up when Ian McClellan had Strathclyde Police. It's human nature. It's, yeah, uh, that's it what is. happens. I mean, the pitch is going up. Like you said, I mean, they did it in brass bands, right? Like, why, yeah. why did it become an issue in brass bands? It's the same exact reason. Uh, and then, you know, the same thing happened with church organs 400 years ago. It's, it, uh, it's human nature, right? Like, like psychologically, something slightly higher in pitch uh, than something next to it your brain is going to prefer that. Uh, but here's some other pros that, you know, that I wanted to try and sneak into this conversation. Here, here's another one. Chanters would get better as opposed to just getting higher in pitch. So right now, a chanter maker, instead of continually refining that one chanter and making it better and better and better, uh, instead of doing that, what chanter makers are doing now is like you know, continuing to work on trying to increase the pitch without sacrificing you know, magnitudes of tonal quality. So the actual quality of chanter that we're going to get would be better if we had a internationally agreed upon pitch that we, that we played at, right? I think that's definitely true. The other thing that would be true is conceptually, uh, the factor that, that, uh, uh, that difference between bands would no longer uh, be a major thing where like, oh, uh, band A and band B played exactly the same quality, but band B was slightly higher in pitch and therefore just sort of like psychologically for no particularly good reason, band B is going to win. You know, that that's, that's the reason for the pitch races in the first place. I think, you know, so yeah. it certainly was, it's, I remember clearly in SFU uh, when I was in the band, I remember clearly trying to keep up with FM pitch wise was like a, a yearly thing. And we had Sinclair chanters, which were amazing chanters, but each year we had to kind of whittle away at them. Uh, and, and the, the, you know, at, at a certain point, the amazing Sinclair chanter wasn't able to keep up with the pitch anymore. And so the band had to move on to trying other things. Yeah. I, rem I remember they were ahead of the curve on the pitch. SFU was one year they came over and they were higher than everybody. It was slight. It was just too high. Yeah, they never got the, the the weather didn't help and it started to get, become sound a bit anemic, but it was very very well set up and higher than everybody. Um, that that is the danger of going high. And I think the chanter makers. I hear them talking about the the higher pitch chanter without any loss of volume. They want, but they're talking about rather than volume, they're talking about projection. So it's high pitch and high projection. Yeah. I don't hear them talking about uh, more harmonics and more stability, and that's mm -hmm. the two things I think the lower pitch would you would be forced to develop that because if you say that's the pitch, you can't go anywhere with that. So just get that pitch. Once you've got the intervals right and the nine notes, it's then a, a question of uh, the harmonics and the, the timbre of the sound. Yes, and I think probably the last chant that I can remember where there was a distinct timber quality the, that has disappeared. The old hardy chanters used to have a very, very distinct quality on the low G. It was like a sweet low G, and that's a, a really bum note to, to get nowadays, yeah. to get any musical colour from, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and But I remember, I always remember the hardy, I could, old, I could tell a hardy chanter without looking at it when you hear them playing the P-Rock and playing the Crown Lewis and, and they would hit the low G. It was just a, a magic, magic sound. Um, and that disappeared when the pitch went up. And it's that kind of quality that they would need to develop in all the notes to maximise the harmonics. Yeah. 
And that, that would be a whole different ballgame for the chanter makers that they would have to address. I, and then, and then, obviously, like the final benefit here of the B flat chanter is, which is the most important, is it allows us to interface with the rest of the musical world. Which is like, you know, I feel like uh, overall, and and uh, I think Scotland is way ahead of the curve at this point. Uh, but uh, even talking with Ross Miller, you know, who's in, you know, regularly integrating with other uh, musicians, you know, as part of his livelihood and stuff. I mean, he's using the B flat chanter to do that, but you know, like the, but the biggest reason here is being able to play with other instruments is how you learn and how our art form can develop and become influenced by other things and actually press forward. I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest bottlenecks that we see in, in the pipe band art. It's the same thing every year. Uh, and part of it's because if I want to go play with a jazz pianist, the first half hour of that has, is going to be like trying to figure out how we can play in tune together. Uh, whereas if we just play in concert pitch, um, that becomes a lot more reasonable to do, I think. Yeah, I don't really think it's a good idea. I think it's inevitable. It's going to happen. I think so because too. there are so many um, educated and good musicians playing in pipe bands that interface with other instruments out with the band, uh, they, they, we don't need to sell the idea to them. They already know. And there is a hunger, I think, for you know for the pipe bands to play with. There always has been to play with other instruments um, and, and be accepted in the orchestra as a, you know, in, as a genuine instrument. Whereas at the minute, we actually ostracise ourselves out of it by playing this crazy pitch. And exactly. not only that, if you actually, tr I have some experience recording well on instruments and the bagpipe, when you sit down with a sound engineer, he will tell you straight away that the, the Highland bagpipe, the pipe chanter, cuts through everything. It is a headache for them to in the mix. And, uh, and, and, microphones, and, and microphones yeah, aren't designed like for, microphones aren't designed to record music that's uh, tuned in between concert pitch notes either like they're just no. not uh they're not made for that yeah but even the actual frequency of yeah. it if you listen to the the Ulian pipe there's a mellowness to it and it can sit in with other instruments and it can blend in and become one sound the highland bagpipe will always be the highland bagpipe surrounded by other instruments it, it rarely becomes part of an overall ensemble in terms of tonality mm. uh and that's because of the pierce, piercing frequency and the pitch even when it's Tuned to the same pitch as the other instruments, it is such a narrow. It, I would say we've almost separated the chanter from the drones in many ways. I mean, if you the first thing you notice when you drop down to four six six is your chanter submer tonally submerges into your drones much more, and your drones have a bigger interface when you the harmonics start to swim round about you. Yeah. They're much more defined. That's the biggest thing. And that's the thing that should be exploited because that is the, the organic sound of the bagpipe. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I mean, we're, we're in agreement with this. And, you know, I, yeah, I think it is inevitable. Uh, but why don't we just do it? And, you know, the arguments I've heard against it have really just been, uh, it's never going to happen, which if you look closely is not an argument. And B, like, I don't want to. Like, yeah. that's really, I mean, I haven't heard any solid reasons why this shouldn't just obviously be the way that it is. 
But we have, as I say, we have a lot of players within the band who currently run a dual pipe box where they have a B-flat chanter and, and they have tone, uh, drone extenders and they have the band chanter. Some of them have two separate bagpipes. So the the dual culture already exists. It's not, it's not new. Right. And, and all the people who are doing that are at the better end in terms of the quality of player. Agree. The people that are doing it, right? So it wouldn't be that difficult to say we're going to have a competition and the legislation is B-flat, 466, or you'll lose points. If you come in at 472, you're going to drop points. So you, you need to have a clean legislation. Everybody has to play at that pitch. Yeah. This, I mean, this is not just try it. crazy. Yeah. We should just try it. Half, half of your band have got these chanters anyway. And then the other thing, you know, I think there are logistics involved, but it's nothing that's not easily dealt with. Like, so uh, I think the first logistic would be, how do you monitor this? So, you know, it would have to be the responsibility of, you know, one of the judges, maybe piping judge one or something to actually do some sort of check with a tuner of some kind as to what pitch the band is playing at. But that's not rocket science. That can easily be done. It's also something that could be done after the fact, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if uh, band A catches wind that band B was playing at the wrong pitch, you could listen back to it. It would need to be a digital recording, but theoretically you could do it that way, like retrospective as well. Um, and then the other, yep, yeah, sorry, go you ahead. You could do it the final tune. You could do it the final tune. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing too. I mean, could, are there stewards that are, uh, that could be trained to, uh, you know, to get the pitch or something, you know, or, or something like that. I don't know, but it's not that, um, it's not that outrageous to think about. And then the other thing I do think it would, it would, you would want to make it so it's like 466 at, you know, basic in, in a, in like a stable environment like room temperature such that if if the temperature did get really hot you know the the acceptable pitch would go up to 469 so that you wouldn't have to reset your band uh you know if the sun came out you know because that yeah so that's so not reasonable you'd have a tolerance yeah like a tolerance a, 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 yeah exactly a high a high and low tolerance so basically um you would need a big screen and a big tuner on that big screen and each band comes in <laughs> at the final tune and we take a reading and they say, yep, you're within the tolerances. And, right. and if they're not, you can say you're out with the tolerances, you need to do something about it or would, or, you, or you can go on with that, but you, you drop, you, you, you'll, you'll suffer for that. There'll be a penalty in other words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's difficult to institute a penalty in our current judging system though, where it's just ranked first to last. Um, and that's a different ball. That's a different can of worms, I think, uh, mm -hmm. to talk about like a points based system, but that would be difficult to do. But, uh, uh, but I also think honor, the honor code is not would prevail. I don't think, you know, I think if everybody just agreed, just agreed that we're, you know, going to play at 466. And then if it's a hot day, you know, maybe it goes up to a certain amount or something like that. I think that's, I don't know. I think that's reasonable. I don't think that's crazy. Well, the, the penalty, when I say penalty, I don't mean taking points off. At the final tune, if you're above the top tolerance level, you don't go on. There you go. You, you, you're not getting in. Cut at the line. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like, and that's a culture we're used to because 
we cut players at the, at the last minute if they're tonally not right. So, and that would that be a sobering thought for every pipe major. If you say, don't sail close to the wind here, guys. If you're saying it's between um, four six four and and, and four seventy, for example, or four six nine or whatever, I think the first year you can leave a big tolerance. Uh, but don't sail close to the wind and come in right at the top end because there's a danger the sun will come out and you're not going to play because you'll go over. Right. Yeah. I think some re- some basic research might need to be done there, you know, where, uh, you know, where a person is playing a, uh, or, or several people are playing uh, a 466 bagpipe in various conditions and just taking notes as to what the tolerances should be, you know, because it's, you know, if it's uh, the direct sunlight, you know, in, in Scotland, it's, uh, it is challenging, right? Like the difference between cloud cover and uh, when the sun comes out can be uh, 15 degrees Fahrenheit anyway. I'm, I don't know Celsius, but like it can be a big swing in temperature and, and the pitch mm-hmm. is going to change when that happens. You know, that's uh, it's going to change at least a little bit. Uh, every pipe major's nightmare, you know, is when the sun comes out right as you're going on. But we tend to operate a system at the minute where pipe majors, the, the, and we always have done, the sun comes out and the, the pipes get brighter and the pitch goes up and we run around um, tempering Fs and high As and Ds. Yeah. And then we, we, we reset the tone and, and all these dark notes, we stop them getting too high and then we're going to compete. And then you take the pipes out the next week and you have to lift the tape off yeah. these notes because that sun's not there. So your actual approach would need to change. If you were competing and you had set at 466 and it was getting very warm, you would have to only accommodate your drones and play the minimum so that you're not driving that pitch up. Right. At the minute, the bands are deliberately, if the sun comes out, they're playing and playing and and letting some of the notes go sharp and sorting them very quickly and going on to compete. Yeah. It would, it would just mean the priorities change. You, you would need to be targeting for not the highest pitch you could get, but to be hit the target. Yes, right. Uh, without, you know, and but I think the important thing is that you don't have to reset your band uh, on mm. the day, you know. So if it is hot... You know, if it is hot, the uh, the maximum pitch allowed does go up. You know, that, that has yeah, to be that Yeah, that could way. be temperature-based. Yeah. You could say if a temperature is up in the 80s, then the tolerances are are bigger. Right. So it's almost like uh, it's almost like you don't even it's, – it's almost like maybe whoever is measuring the pitch uh, also has like a reading as to what the actual ambient temperature is outside. So you could sort of uh, cross-reference, you know – and suffice to say, uh, the uh, the logistics would need to be sorted out, uh, but I I don't think it's anything I don't, I don't think it's anything too crazy. Whereas right now, you know, bands that do manage to get a higher pitch tend to not always, uh, or certainly traditionally, they've tended to have a slight advantage over a band who has a low pitch. The reason for that is when your own ear is the biggest traitor that you'll ever come across. Yeah, for sure. Because if, if you hear something at a certain pitch and something comes on brighter, you immediately think, oh, that's nice. You know, uh, you don't like it going the other way. And hence why we wrongly use the word flat. You know, you know, a band comes on, they're lower pitch, they say, oh, they're flat. And say, no, they're not flat, they're lower pitch. Yeah. You know, flat is when the interval is wrong, yes. you know, and it's flat in terms of the, the interval of the notes. Uh, it's not anything to do with pitch. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I think I also, uh, 
I think, you know, being slightly flat and, you know, going for that breadth in the way that Inverary does, I think it does play to our particular strengths as a pipe core. Like, and I also feel like uh, Field Marshal, who tends to be slightly higher in pitch, uh, it, it plays to their strengths to be that way because they have such a sweetness uh, in the way they set up. So, so I, I do think that it's, um, uh, I do think how bands sound plays to their personality, but I don't think that's going to change uh, if you govern the the pitch. I don't. I think people will still, they will still uh, develop their own unique sound and probably in ways that would surprise you. Once the, once the race for the highest pitch ends and you can just focus on, on your best possible tone, I think the, the quality of bands will increase or the quality of tone. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I don't think it's bagpipes alone. I think snare drums would need to change dramatically. I actually think they would need to make a, a more dramatic change than bagpipes would. Yeah. And everybody's talking about the, 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 the pitch and the, the, the chanters going up. I think the pitch and drums has went up far more than pipes. I know. To the point where there's no, and I mean, uh, I'm speaking, I'm speaking uh, out of turn here and I'm not in my lane right now. Uh, just uh, full disclosure, but I don't feel like the way snare drums are now, there's no tone anymore in the drum. It's just a really like a very uh, super tight, uh, you know, one dimensional kind of sound. And, and I understand at the high level, you're still thinking about the tone of the drum. Like I get it. Uh, but it's, uh, it's the same question really, isn't it? It's like, uh, why do we have to always be higher? Why can't we just go for actual quality of timbre of the drum? Which right now is basically, there is no timbre now, basically. And there also, I hear people talking about how the pitch of the snare drum need to be parallel to the pitch of, of the chanter. Um, I've heard um, basil drums, for example, being played along with the bagpipes and it's actually very, very nice, and it's totally the opposite. It's much lower and, and, and uh, from the chanter, and it's actually, I think, it's better, uh, harmonically better. Yeah. Uh, whereas when when you've got everything up there, we've got small tenor drums pitching in the same frequency as the chanters, at the same tonal color, and you've got the snares doing the same. It's all very toppy, you know. Yeah. And you've only got the and even bass drums have become quite more tenorish in sound over the years. Um, so it's the, it's the bottom end that we're neglecting because we're chasing this clarity and definition. Right. Well, we're to make it. Yeah. We're chasing an artificial sort of construct, right? So we're chasing pitch and like, so we're going a mile wide here. Like we're chasing pitch every year instead of trying to dig deeper into what, the, like into how much quality we can get out of a set pitch. You know, so so we're. It's been this way for a long a long time. If I think back, I remember an instance in the studio when I was recording an early solo album, and we were using a little jazz quartet, and I th- it was a kind of waltzy thing we were doing. And I went in and recorded it, put the headphones on with the click track, recorded it, and the other instruments recorded separately. And we came across this kind of narrow sound of the the, the pipe chanter. And uh, and the sound engineer said to me, could you go on and double track it and triple track it so that we can get the pipes a bit broader next to the other instruments, you know? He says, they're cutting through everything at the minute. I says, right, okay. So I went and put the headphones on and it was myself playing through the headphones and I I says, I want to hear myself really loud 
so that I can blow in and blow the same pitch as if it was a piper standing beside me. So recorded it again, and then we went in. After doing three goes, uh, triple tracked it, and the sound engineer was playing it back, and he scratched his head. He said, what? "He thought he'd lost it one minute, you know." And, and he played the other track. And he said, "No, it's definitely there." He said, "You've made it too close together." Yeah, like there's not enough and variance. Looked, yeah, and I looked at him, and he says, "We can put a, a little separation in that," and he says, "We can put a split second timing." And I went, whoa, whoa, don't do that. I said, oh, piping community. <laughs> I said, that's not what we do. We try to sound like one. Yeah. And he went, oh, oh. Why? And he quite innocently said to me, why do you do that? Why don't we just have one then? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a few here, a fiddle orchestra playing. You know, the, the whole thing to us is kind of out of focus and there's harmonics swimming everywhere and, you know, and, and, and there's looseness in the yeah. thing. And it gets it's atmospheric, but there's no it's not cloned. They don't want every fiddle to sound exactly the same. And, and let's drive the pitch up to get rid of some of these harmonics because that one's different from that instrument. You know, the, we've we, there's a difference between being cloning and homogenizing the sound, and, and we try to clone it to a clinical degree. Yeah. So I have thoughts on this too. One of my one of the thoughts is. Um, one of the thoughts is I think that is actually secretly why cane drone reeds are so great is because they're imperfect uh, is, is because they're imperfect in the uh, certainly uh, as you go up in the harmonic spectrum, like the actual their quality is actually imperfect. And uh, and so that you get that really fuzzy, high frequency, tingly sound with cane drone reeds that you don't necessarily get with synthetic drone reeds. And it's not because See, and then people are like, oh, synthetic drone reads are no different than cane. Like if you look at it under a spectroscope, which is like a, a tool that, that sort of would show you the intensity of all these harmonics. Like when you look under, under a spectrometer or a spectroscope or whatever they call it, like, oh, they're the same. Except for the fact, I think you might be missing when someone does that analysis, you might be missing that like the cane is actually, uh, all the harmonics are there, but they're not perfect and they move around. And, and it's actually the, it's actually the, imperfections that make the sound so enjoyable and so warm uh, to listen to. It, it's actually the, it's the articulation when the, the harmonics change yeah. in the Canaan ones. It's going like and, this. And, and, and you, yeah, and, and you hear this kind of live, it's like, a, it's, the diff, it's like the difference between a drum machine and the drummer. Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly yeah. right. And it would be yeah. interesting, I think one assumption that we've made in pipe bands uh, forever, as, as far as I can tell. Although I've heard rumors that maybe Vic Police uh, didn't use totally uniform chanters. I don't know if that's true or not. But that's one assumption we've always made, is that the chanters should all be matching. Uh, and I think it, you might actually get a more interesting sound with more depth uh, if you could find an array of different chanters. Uh, obviously, they would still need to be in tune with each other. I'm not saying they should be out of tune, but like uh, chanters with different quality of sound, uh, blending different combinations of chanters. I think there's probably a lot there uh, that we've just never explored because we assume they all need to be the same because we're trying to play in unison. But I think at the high levels, some variants uh, might actually improve the quality of the sound. Yeah, possibly, because I've seen bands over the years try playing one type of drones and invariably, that does not improve the band sound. No, it doesn't. You know, um, partly because 
you're never going to edit out all the variables anyway. I mean, synthetic dronaries have edited edited out a lot of the harmonics. Get that, uh, and a lot of the um, incidental harmonics, not the fundamental harmonics, the incidental ones that happens when they articulate with the chanter. Yes. Um, and I think I'm not sure about different chanters, but but I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think different drones make the chanter sound different anyway. Mm -hmm. We can we get that. But I think there definitely needs to be a broader uh, resonance to the chanters and a lower pitch. You're not going to bite on yeah. the different chanters. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> well, it's verging towards an excuse for not having them quite perfect. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a. I think if we analyze it, we've got different chanters anyway. They're not. They're not through the same. Yeah. You know, there is a difference there. It's just the tolerance is very fine. But when you think back, the bands that were playing the wooden chanters in the 80s, Strathclyde Police and uh, SFU, they were taking them to a much, as time went on, it was a much brassier sound and a much more much more kind of metallic, higher pitched version. And it was losing a bit of the the timber of the, 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 the wooden chanter. When you hear a good wooden chanter with a solo player, the, the biggest difference I notice, apart from the tonal colour, is the grace notes, the pip, that you can get the pip at the front head of a grace note. There's that pipping noise yeah. that when you hear the, the timber. Um, you can get that sometimes on a synthetic chanter, but it's more difficult to achieve with resonance. But that doesn't mm -hmm. transpose into a complete pipe core. Um, there's, there's as many disadvantages and pipe cores are having wooden chanters in terms of temperature and variable, you know, lack of stability and variables yeah. uh, as there is bonuses, you know? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And, and I mean, yeah, the, the plastic chanters are definitely, in my experience, just more stable. So uh, they, they change less with uh, environmental changes, uh, which I, yeah. which I think is a, I don't know. And then, uh, I think with a wooden chanter, you might be able to get a more mellow sound, but I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's what you're looking for when you're shooting for unison or, or certainly it's a worthwhile trade-off. I think it makes unison sound clearer when, uh, when the chanter isn't quite as mellow, like you might get on the wooden chanter. I don't know. Depends. Well, yeah. Because, because we're, we measure the band when they strike up in their introduction, we measure that projection. And and mellow chanter does not deliver projection, right? Which I mean, to that degree, it could be an interesting strategy for a band that doesn't like. In Or and More, we played wooden chanters, and that was probably a good thing for us because you know our playing wasn't as was was never going to be as clear as uh, the top bands. So to present some warmth to the sound, you know, was that was probably a good trade off in those days because our unison wasn't going to be as good, so our tone could be. Uh, sweeter as just a general strategy. So maybe there's something to be said for it there, but I think at the highest levels, there's a reason everyone's on the plastic channers now. Yeah. I think the, uh, the lower pitch would probably help uh, the wooden chanters case because when you heard the Nile chanter has been played successfully a few times in pipe bands and when it was slightly lower pitch, yeah, because it, it didn't deliver that harsh projection and the loudness, you know, of, of the plastic chanter when the pitch went up. Yeah. But, but it's, if, if, as a pipe major tries to set these chanters up, 
wind chanters can be a bit of a nightmare with the temperature. You see them all holding the chanter at the bottom before they start you know, standing at the line because the bottom end can just drop out them if that wood gets cold. Exactly right. Yeah. And then that's a, that's a whole new, that's a whole nightmare in itself, you know, to try to, to try and do something in 10 minutes to resolve that issue uh, is difficult. I think as well, the one thing I've noticed is the pitch has went right up and it's come back a bit now and it had to because I think we got to the stage where the bottom notes were becoming an unstable issue. The low Gs especially. Yeah. Uh, some of them chanted were coming very trumpety sounding and, yeah. and, and lack of melodic definition in them. And, and it was hard to tell whether they were sharp or flat. Um, there was a lack of definition in the colour of the note. And, and then you were getting, as the pitches went up, I see more low A's being taped. Now, when I was playing as, in the 70s uh, in, in grade one as a youngster, nobody ever had tape in the low A. Yeah. You know, it, never, it wasn't an issue. It was D, F, high G, high A. That was the, 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 the notes that were floating. Now, we're up at such a high pitch and, and a high frequency with the, the reeds that uh, every note is floating potentially. Yeah. You know? and, and low A's is, is one of them, you know. The other thing too is like, uh, I think I think there's a lot of moisture paranoia out there as well, where, uh, and, and if you have that, if you're, you know, if you're really worried about moisture, uh, you end up with a drier system and then that drier system introduces further instability on the bottom hand because the, you know, the bottom hand is the one that's going to drop out on you as, as your chantry takes, takes on moisture. That's certainly been my experience. Um, like I can remember playing solos with the super dry setup, uh, but gradually over time, you know, that channery takes on moisture. And so like, just, uh, just, uh, ripping tape off the bottom hand can, you know, every time I play my pipes, it's like the low A starts here. And then, uh, you know, over time I have to move it because otherwise you're redoing all your notes as the low A changes, which is, uh, you know, yeah, but the only, and decades gone by, if I go way back, the only time that low A had that instability was when you when you went to a different country and the sea level changed. Yeah. That then, yeah, you often had to reset your low A. In Scotland, you never had to touch that, but you do nowadays at the pitch that are and, and the type of chanters that we're playing yeah. now. Right. No, I 100% agree. I think it's tempting to say that the high hand is unstable. Uh, you know, I think that's the first place you people go, but it's, I think you're right. I think it's incorrect. I think it's the bottom hand that's actually uh, betraying you. And the problem is as the bottom hand changes, or as you're trying to find a low A, or let's say, you know, uh, because you're setting the pipe to the low A generally. Uh, mm -hmm. But then if that low A changes on you, then that's a big problem. And, and so you'll typically retune your drones to the low A, but then it, now it seems like your high hands changed. But it was actually the low A all along. I, I found that uh, that's a difficult sort of paradox to deal with, I think, in setting up. Especially in a band, because if you've got your, your low A's at the higher end of the spectrum, you know, and which brings the drone, screws the drones down. If, if you go and play and play and you tune and tune and get to the final tune up and you screw them down again, and then you have a walk up to the line, yeah. You're going to strike up. Your your chanter will have dropped in pitch, and you'll sound really flat all over because your drones are down, yeah. screwed down too far. That's like that. I feel like that's the mistake that uh, everybody but the top six bands tends to make. 
and I'm generalizing, I, you know, uh, but I think maybe it is better now, but yeah, that's what'll happen is bands will get to final tuning and they'll play continuously. Uh, and they'll play and play and play. And the drone tuner goes around and around and around. Uh, and the, you know, the pitch basically will climb with the chanters that entire time. Uh, but then you have to stop playing for two to three minutes as you know, yeah. as you get ready to play at the line and then, uh, yeah, that's a nasty sort of thing. And, uh, I learned a lot from stalking Richard Parks over the years too. Cause like he does the opposite of that. Like they play very little the entire time they, they tune up. Well, it's true though. The pitch you're going to compete at, you will reach within 10, 15 minutes anyway. Yeah. And all you're doing is putting it back there and, and letting it drop and putting it back as long as you right. you tune up over the day. And, and it's most of the lower grade bands, you see them having a band practice on a Saturday <laughs> rather than just getting the tone stable and going on to play. Yeah. In the old days, in, or in the old Oren Moore days when the band was in grade three, I mean, yeah, two hour practice between uh, before every competition you know it's like we got more work to do boys <laughs> let's get them out we got to make sure we're playing the hard reads and then you know uh man yeah it used to be epic epic it's like okay i think we can get it better now it's like but it's still an hour before we go on um uh, you're not gonna i don't think you're gonna get it better on the day I, that's something i've learned yeah. over the years uh you're never going to increase your quality of play on the day like you're never going to you're never going to produce something better on the day than, than what you could produce the day before. I mean, it's really just about putting what you have on the field successfully. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think the band yeah. maybe plays, I think there's maybe a 1%, you know, uh, increase in, you know, cause people are excited and dialed in. Like maybe there's a very slight potential lift, but you shouldn't be shooting for that. Well, I, when I was playing major of the, Shots. I always, I was more worried in the tuning park if it was going well and we were playing through the stuff and there was no mistakes. Right. I would, I would much prefer issues to be sorted and a few no errors coming in and giving us a fright uh, 10 minutes before we go on. Whereas if you've had a 20 minute period where the tones are getting better and better and nobody's made any mistakes there's a high probability there's going to be a mistake on the park. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if you take that philosophy back to the 70s, Tom McAllister, I played in shots as a boy, and Tom McAllister was pipe major, and he maintained on a Saturday your best performance of your medley was the first time you played it. Yeah. And and he, and he wouldn't play through the whole medley. He would play a little bit of the opener, then try a break, and then try the Strasbourg, try little patches of it, but not play the whole thing so that you still had to think about yeah. it. Because once you've played it once or twice, it's like driving your car in the morning and you realise you're 10 miles down the road and you don't remember the last 10 miles. Right. You know, you don't remember passing anything. That's the scenario you get Yeah. If once you've rehearsed it on the Saturday. I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned over the years now that I'm now that I'm like an old person that believes in B-flat channers. Like uh, how I got there, I mean... Because I, I remember, you know, in the old days, you're like, okay, today's the world's. And uh, like, so today's the day I have to play my best. And I just, <laughs> you know, I just, I'm going to really take it to a whole new level today, you know? And, yeah. uh, and that, that's bad. You know, um, you get, you get all worked up, you get, uh, you know, you become focused on things that really aren't that important. 
Uh, and I'm much different now in that, like, you know, basically all I'm going to do today is just do my thing. And hopefully that my, hopefully my preparation will speak for that. But you know, if you, I, if you tell the vast majority of pipers in the world at all levels, uh, that, that you'll, you will, you won't play the full piece of music that you'll be performing until you're on the competition field. They're, they'll think you're crazy, but you're absolutely right about that. You shouldn't, mm. you, all you should be doing is going through, you know, a set of like a well thought out routine uh, to get your head in the game. And then, uh, yeah, not, not waste reps when, uh, when they're, when you don't need to on the day, conserve energy and focus. Yeah. Uh, the, you're talking about the competitive element now as well yeah. and the preparation. When you think back when you were successful in winning major championships, if you analyse the practices leading up to that, you won the major a couple of times in the band hall before you'd done it on the Saturday. And if you think back, you think, yeah, I remember Tuesday was brilliant. Or you come home for band saying, oh, it was really going well tonight, really going well. You need to do that two or three times through the week and then you go out to Saturday. And it might not be quite as good as it was last Tuesday, but it's still going to win it yeah. because you're at that level, you've created a new plateau that, you, that you're looking for. You don't play 80%, 90% and then go out on a Saturday and that turns into 100%. Exactly. If you're averaging, if you're averaging 80 or 90% efficiency, you're going to deliver that on the Saturday. And, and I... I, I I knew that I feel like the week leading up to a big competition, I'd come home and Anne, my wife, who played in the band as well, would say to me, "Well, have you won it yet?" Right. Yeah, and, I love and, that. And she was meaning it. Yeah, and and this would maybe be the Wednesday or something. I say, what she's asking is because she knows you have to win it in the hall, the band hall, yeah. before you go in the field. It's deceiving. I mean, it's deceiving, and that's that's what makes you. I think that's what makes a young player think that you're going to play out of your skin on the day. Because when you watch someone like Angus McCall or Stuart Little and they just light the whole room on fire and they're just, you know, their fingers are going a million miles an hour and they're doing all sorts of amazing stuff and it's super creative and they have this amazing charisma. Uh, but you just, you don't realize that that's just a standard walk in the park. That's what they do, you know, more or less. That's what they've been preparing for. And it's what they do on a regular basis in the practice room all the time. It's so, such that when it comes time to perform, they literally can just relax. And also, it becomes so intuitive that if you play to that level when you're practicing, if you manage, if you time it well and the week leading up to it, and you get to that top-notch level and it's so fluent and intuitively you can do it in your sleep, when you're subjected to the adrenaline and the crowd and whatever's going on in the day, you can look at that and think, oh, and you can play into that because you're just going, you're fluent. Yes. You, can, you can play what you've been practicing and you can react to the crowd and you can harness the adrenaline. Whereas if you think you're not quite match fit and you go in and you've got the adrenaline and the crowd reaction, you start to focus on the playing and, and the negative side comes in into your head, sure. you know. Yeah, and, and that's when you, you will not deliver. But but you lost it on the Tuesday and the Wednesday and on the Saturday. Exactly right. Yeah, and it, just the, that general mindset too, you know, uh, it's how you avoid making mistakes. Because, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is like, okay, well, if I look back objectively at, at my most successful performances, uh, you know, that performance I had yesterday that was so good. Well, actually, there were seven or eight things that, 
uh, are, I would consider mistakes that happen during that performance, you know, and it could be a note mistake maybe, but it's usually, you know, a missed doubling or a missed grace note. Uh, but it didn't have that much impact on the result. Uh, and the, the, the audience or the judge loved it anyway. Uh, but if you have the right mindset, like I'm, you know, I'm just going to relax and do my thing. Then when a mistake does come along, it doesn't trigger you. It doesn't send your adrenaline through the roof. You know, you just, you're, you're willing and able to go for it. Meanwhile, if you're doing what you were saying, where, where, you know, you're practicing at 80% and then trying to get a hundred percent on the day. Well, now you're trying to, you're trying to get a hundred percent on the day and now a mistake happens. And then the adrenaline, you just, all your focus is gone and your mindset is gone because you feel like you've blown it where you really haven't, you know, or, or, uh, with a different mindset, um, you know, it would just all be different, I think. But I think yeah, that's really important. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And you, what you're describing there is you get to the stage where there's a performance factor. And that's something we never really talk about in, in the piping world. Um, you know, and the, where the actual musical presentation is stronger than the accuracy of the tone and it's stronger than the, the clarity of execution, the actual musical presentation and engagement with the listener is so strong that the judges and the listeners forgive that little Dublin that wasn't exactly. just quite clean there or a little intonation thing and during one part of the performance because you they're, they're seduced by the music and we tend to analyse everything on a technical level or a tonal level and, and if it's not right we never even talk about the music and it, it's another thing uh and and I remember, you know, watching you teach when I was first getting to know your teaching style and just, you know, you and I are on the same page as far as rhythm being like really the bottom line musically uh, and just along the same lines. I mean, I tell students, if you can get the judge to enjoy the rhythm, uh, they're not going to care if you miss the occasional embellishment, at least not until you get to the very, very highest levels. You know, if you can get them to enjoy the groove and the, and the flow of the tune. I mean, that's, that's a uh, nine tenths of the battle right there. Yeah. If you go to the very basic level, sometimes you're teaching and uh, the players in the practice chanter and they're trying to play the tune for you. And you can sense that they're analyzing their own performance in terms of the clarity of embellishments. Yeah. And, and the, even to the stage, if they miss an embellishment, they stop and stumble oh, as if yeah. they're considering going back to get it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's right. Well, no, you're exactly right. They'll miss a, they'll miss an E doubling and they'll stop. But it's like, well, oh, why yeah. didn't you stop in the last 17 uh, beats where, where you were <laughs> half a second ahead of the beat, you know? Uh, and, and if you listen to other great musical players, guys who are brilliant technicians will not get every, articulate every embellishment. If you listen to Gordon Duncan playing, yeah. he misses a lot of embellishments, but it doesn't matter because when he plays them, he's brilliant. Yes. But it's actual the energy and and the actual playing in front of the beat, behind the beat, and, and but keeping the groove, you know, rhythmically is fantastic, and his excitement, and 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 it's the music first, the music and the drive and the energy before the actual demonstrating every embellishment clinically. Yes. Yeah. If a if a Dublin becomes a grace note, sometimes it's more appropriate, and, and if it's a jig or a reel, to, to get that note value correct than it is to express the doubling. And even in the top solo events, you hear guys playing two, four marches and you, they're stretching the bar lines to demonstrate the embellishments. Oh, it drives me crazy. 
uh, it, it absolutely drives me crazy. And you know, the ones and the people you want to listen to, like, you know, like, a, I like, for example, uh, at Kansas city, I always enjoy Alistair Lee. Cause, and, and it's not because he's in top form in January folks. It's not, it's just that his mm-hmm. rhythm is so good. And he is focused on the big picture, the flow of the tune. And then, you know, obviously, uh, obviously his technique is also excellent, but that's like, well, it's almost the, the exact analogy in this case where it's the icing on the cake, you know, but what people really care about is the flavor of the cake. And then the icing is the bonus, which, yeah, hopefully it looked, hopefully the cake looks great, but there's important base layers that, um, that the best are focusing on, even though it might not seem like it. I, I think the, the art of piping at the minute is going through a stage where um, there's such a high skill level uh, in finger dexterity that they're adding more and more embellishments in and, and, and rhythmical trickery into the thing, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and they're so well-educated and clever now on harmonies that, you know, every tune that they're playing, they're putting in pedal harmony, counterpoint, and all sorts of stuff going on. To the extent that, and they'll argue with you that it works, you know, and they'll show you the music. So this works. And if I say, I can hear a bit of discord there. No, 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 no. I went to the conservatoire. This will show you this. <laughs> you know? and, and I'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't work mathematically. Uh, what I'm saying is chanter against chanter against chanter, there's a clash because we don't have the ability when you're playing the accompaniment, uh, if you're playing the, the pedal harmony or the counterpoint, we don't have the ability to sit back on the volume or increase the volume. So it, it may be a, a spatial clash in terms of the volume. Uh, and it, yeah, it might work musically, but that doesn't mean to say it's well suited to having six chanters playing six different harmony lines. Right. And, and, I'm, and I'm hearing a lot of that sometimes in bands now where they, they establish the, the, the motif, the melody comes on, you know, the, you hear the establish the melody, and then <clears throat> there's no build up of layers. It's just whoosh, and there's a whole layer of harmonies yeah. come raining down on it. And you go, and if you're judging it, you're walking around saying, "Oh, okay, that's right." <laughs> and and you and you think that wasn't a clever trick. It was it's very clever how you've arranged this, but it, it's not effective. Yeah. You know, and and I don't think they hear it the way I hear it because they're so involved and so close to it and, and they know it's clever. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about, but it's not effective. Yeah, like clever. I, I, I was, um, lately I've been thinking about pipe band medleys. It's sort of like making a Hollywood movie. And, um, <laughs> and, and it's like, it's like that in so many ways. Cause I, I say that to people uh, like, like the, uh, uh, the setting a course for Lewis thing that uh, I worked on with Allie Henderson for the Inverary medley. Um, and, uh, and I sometimes joke with people. It's like, uh, it's like they, uh, they turned my book into a movie, uh, but they never published the book, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah. so like, um, so I, I send them this idea and then, you know, I'm, I'm on a bit of a tangent, but I'm going to come back. Uh, you send them the idea and then they're sort of like the studio and they're going to like, they're going to rework that script in whatever ways they need to, to like get the medley to sell, you know, because yeah. uh, you know, it's like a, a Hollywood movie, but then, but then yeah, clever doesn't necessarily sell in Hollywood either. You know, like, mm-hmm. like when you go to the movies every now and then something can be clever and really touch you or move you or, or make you excited, you know, like, uh, 
Like I loved Inception and some of the Christopher Nolan movies. Like those are great. Or mm-hmm. Dunkirk was really cool. And it was, but it mm-hmm. was clever. Clever was one of the elements. Um, and it, in yeah. that case, it worked. Uh, but usually it doesn't. And usually what people want is they want like nostalgia. They want a narrative. They want to feel good. They want it to come to a natural conclusion. And as much as like, as much as you want to be creative and you, uh, and you are sick and tired of the medley format, uh, you know, there's a certain gamesmanship to it all that I, I've come to really enjoy. Like, so we have these parameters, like we have these sort of Hollywood movie parameters that we're, we have to play within them if we want to create a blockbuster. And then like, then it becomes a whole new thing in itself and you stop fighting against the format and you just try to make a great movie, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a great art to putting the medley together, that's for sure. Um, one of the things I done when I, mean, I got into a bit of a rut with the medleys because I was writing a lot of the stuff and then people were saying, oh, all your own tunes and they all sound the same and all that sort of stuff. So you start playing other ones and then you stop winning and went back and started <laughs> playing. And so you kind of find yourself in a between a rock and a hard place and I went through quite a bit of emotional stuff with that because I was, I think we were successful when I was playing my own tunes because I knew what I wanted to do ensemble-wise. I knew when I write the tune, I knew rhythmically how this tune would sound better. And most of my tunes were rhythmically driven. They would have a fairly strong melodic motif, but the, the, the presentation of them hinged on them being rhythmically presented. Yeah. So that made it easier sometimes for to say to the drum corps, look, here's the effect we want here. And when you get that, the whole thing works as a unit. Um, but it's very difficult to uh, to get that to work in every department in the band. Um, and you have to compromise. You know, I, I, I hear what you're saying about you give them an idea and then they kind of molest that idea and it comes back in a different shape. Uh Part of that is it needs to be fairly instantaneous. Medley music can be a bit um, disposable. It's elements of it. You know, yeah. you need some big tunes in there as well. Uh, and it also needs to be, for the moment, you can't, if you're going to play an opening tune at the World Championship, unveil it there if you like. That's dangerous because the judges are hearing it for the first time. Maybe they'll love it after they've heard it 12 times, but just hearing it once and saying, Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I like that. I used to give tunes to a good grade two band that we were going to be playing next year. And I had a policy. I remember when we were playing some of the openers in around about 2000, um, the 90s, into 2000. And I would give, that was a very good band, uh, Hydroelectric Buckin, were winning the grade two at the time. And I gave them a couple of openers that we were going to be playing the following season yeah. um, or even the same season because I knew they would be at local competitions playing that with a good sound and good presentation. So when the judge came to hear it, there was a bit of a kind of deja vu right. thing. I thought, oh, For yeah, sure. I, I quite like that. Yeah, yeah. it's really important. I, I, and we kind of used that as a way of uh, filtering the motif into the ears of the adjudicators before we delivered it. Uh, because we wouldn't be playing at the minor competitions, so it might be four or yeah. five competitions into it before, uh, you know, we actually performed it. And I, I found that helpful because not every tune sounds good in its first hearing. That's right, and and especially at the highest levels where 
where like all the bands are great. You, you mm. need to successfully connect with the judge in order to get the result. It's just the way that it is. And so if you give them something brand new and clever that they've never heard before, the chances of connection are very slim, uh, you know, which is why most of the tunes that I'll put forward for medleys in the band, it's, it's all going to be stuff you've heard before because, you know, a brand new composition of mine is really unlikely uh, to do well. It's just the way that it is. Yeah. I mean, I think if the ensemble is arranged and it makes it stronger, then it's a far better chance. Yeah. I, I always maintain that if you if you get the ensemble right, you will get extra points from every judge, including the drumming judge. They won't be quite totally, be fully aware as to why they they like it and, and why they're giving you that little bit extra. Yeah. But it's the overall musical effect that they're going to do it that, that's motivating them to do it. Um, and, and that's the only element that you can develop that will get positive response from all four judges. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. So, um, well, Rob, I think that's probably a good place to call it in uh, just because uh, I know it's getting late there and I've got to get home as well, but uh, yeah, it, it'll definitely be interesting to see where things are, are going to go here in the next year from a COVID perspective and, you know, so we're saying that they're coming out, they're playing Kane Reed's orchestral pitch chanters, yep. um, traditional tunes. Uh. I told you, I'm getting old. It's it's like really, I never thought this was going to happen to me, but it's happening. I, I yeah. God, I I used to be a rebel. What's happened? I know. I used to know. I used to know everything, and now I still know yeah. everything. But uh, it's in the way that I yeah. Uh, but it's funny how that it's funny how that happens. Yeah. Well, you know, I, know. I, I just thought it was interesting how triggered everyone got by the B flat chanter debate, and not, not not always in a bad way. Some people were like, "Yeah, this makes tons of sense," and then other people were definitely opposed to it. It's just really funny. And um, next time I have you on, we'll just talk about heavy and light D throws the whole time because people go bananas about that, you know. And uh, know. you know, uh, it's the just the weirdest thing. And yeah, so. I, I had no idea that uh, B flat channers was going to be like it literally it got shared everywhere. It got shared all over the place. And every share I saw had like 30 comments, the B flat channer yeah. thing. So there you go. Everyone's got an opinion, I guess, but uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe there's someone that can come on a chat with me and give me some solid reasons why you cannot do that. But uh, oh, you don't, uh, it's not going to happen. I think we should just legislate and say it's happening. Well, let's try yeah. it and say, here's the, that's the pitch, go for it. Right. Know? I mean, it's not outrageous. The whole of the world's playing at that pitch and every other, every other musical genre. Yeah. And, and everybody had a moment too. I mean, you know, like uh, I was, I was showing the Dojo U crew uh, earlier this week, like in one of my music history books, it's like, it's right there. I mean, everybody had at, at some point, every, like all of these, uh, all of these groups had to get together and say, got folks, this is getting out of hand. We just need to set the pitch. And, uh, you know, and they, they had that for church organs and they had it for, you know, basic or orchestral music because you need to be able to interface with each other. That's the big thing. They had it, they had it in the brass band world and Boozy and Hawks just went through the roof with their, their share price. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. You know, and, and uh, just so you know, uh, before we sign off, I've got a brand new B-flat chanter coming out on the market. 
uh, <laughs> and uh, boy, it's going to be a great sounding chanter. Uh, it's got the, you can just use a screw to tune it. It's going to be great. It's going to be oh, great. Brilliant. No yeah. tape required. It's going to be perfect. Yeah. B flat. Yeah. Great. Send, send me a sample. Yeah. Or just go to okay. dojo B flat And, uh, uh, yeah, so you go ahead. You know, I think it's for the, I think it's for the good of the good of the piping world though. You know, trust me, trust me. I, I'm here to help. Well, this, this new, this group that's formed at Christ, you know, the guys from the, uh, piping center, uh, they're all pretty renowned folk pipers. Yeah. And very good players. They're, they're just about to release in a couple of days time, this track. Of the, the you know the group of pipers they, they played at Celtic Connections I think in 2017. Now I'll be interested to see if they have the courage of the convictions from are they playing when it's pipes on their own are they playing B flat I hope they are. It'll be interesting to see because that would reinforce the statement. Um, but it's very tempting when you if you we tend to be a bit introverted and try to sell our music. To the piping community rather than the world community. Yeah. And you think, oh, no, the pipers will not buy this. It's too flat. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I don't care. I mean, I just care if it's good. And especially yeah, if you exactly. don't hear a high-pitched chanter first, if you just turn on mm. a B-flat bagpipe recording uh, with no other reference point, you, like you said earlier, you, you barely notice. I mean, you just notice yeah. that it sounds rich and really unique and nice. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Anyway. And stable. More stable. Right. right. Okay, thanks. Enjoy the chat. Catch up later. Yeah, well, thanks for doing that. I mean, you know, did you have plans tonight or uh, or was it? Uh, just more of the lockdown. Yeah, just more, <laughs> just more staring out the window at the, at the rain. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, well, there you go. I really appreciate you taking the time and I hope that uh, that people enjoy. I, I know I do. I, I like the conversational podcast chat type thing. So, so I'm scratching my own itch a little bit here too. So, all right, Rab, thanks Great. very much, sir. Okay. Hey everybody, Andrew Douglas here from the Piper's Dojo, and I just want to say thanks so much for listening to today's iteration of the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, it would be super helpful to us and to a lot of bagpipers out there trying to find us. If you could give us a top-notch review on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast, particularly Apple, iTunes, and Spotify, and things like that, your review would be really, really helpful. So if you have a moment today, definitely go over there and help us out. Other than that, until we meet again on the podcast or somewhere else, thanks again for listening.